0: Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features the Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and *Melisande*, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at .org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest this hour is Major Katie Lunning of Urbandale in August of 2021. Remember, that was during the final days of the hasty American evacuation from Afghanistan. And at that time, Major Lunning was a member of a critical care air transport team that was tasked with transporting 27 Afghan civilians and also members of the U.S. military. They had been injured in that suicide bombing at the Kabul airport. Remember that horrific bombing? Well, for her role during those days, during that chaotic exit, her role treating and evacuating patients in critical condition, Lunning received the Distinguished Flying Cross. That is the highest military award given for acts of heroism or extraordinary achievement while in aerial flight. In receiving this honor, she also became one of the few women and few nurses awarded this, the country's oldest military aviation award. Lunning is actually a member of the Minnesota Air National Guard, where she serves as a critical care air transport nurse with the 133rd Airlift Wing. She now lives and has for a few years in in Iowa with her husband, Uh, works as an ICU nurse manager for the Central Iowa Veterans Administration. Major Katie Lunning, what an honor, heartfelt welcome, congratulations, and of course, thank you for your tremendous service to our country.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And please, Katie, is just fine.
0: Will do. I, I want to go to have you step in, please, with your uh, experiences before that, uh, that bombing, that horrific bombing, to take us back to perhaps the beginning of your deployment. I understand it was in the summer of 2021. Uh, uh, tell us about the circumstances that led to your deployment in Afghanistan. I understand you were actually deployed initially to uh, Qatar.
1: Yes, exactly. So I was actually what we call a shortfall deployment. There was another critical carrier transport, or CCAT as we call it, a CCAT nurse that was supposed to be on that deployment. And in the spring leading up to her leaving, she had a family hardship. So National Guard Bureau uh, contacted me as another CCAT nurse and asked if I would be interested in taking her deployment. So, and this was in May is when I found out about this opportunity. My command supported it. So I took her spot on that deployment and I left in uh, July 5th is when I left. And you go out to Travis Air Force Base originally, do a little bit of training, and then head over to Qatar. The military base uh, in Qatar is called Al-Udeed.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, just so we make sure we're, we're clear on that acronym, uh, CCAT is short for Critical Care air transport team. So I think you'll be referring to that from what I can guess uh, during the, this conversation. So so when you uh, arrive in uh, Qatar there in the summer of 2021, what is your expectation uh, for the mission you're on?
1: Yeah, I really expected it to be um, kind of my introduction to a CCAT deployment I was the first time I'd ever done a deployment like this. I had only been a member of CCAT since 2019, so I was very new to this role. And Al is a very big Air Force base, very you know busy, but with scheduled activities, I should say. So I thought I'd go there, get a few flights, kind of get my feet wet into what being a CCAT nurse was like. And just enjoy Doha and Qatar. It, Doha is a very modern, beautiful city, lots of good tourism. So I thought I was going to have a great, you know, first deployment as a SEACAT, get a little experience and kind of enjoy what Qatar had to offer.
0: And and I understand those first few weeks were in, enjoyable. <laughs> You're serving yes. in the military, but relatively enjoyable. What, what for instance, was enjoyable about that, that first month or so?
1: Uh, meeting my team, we had we were lucky enough, we had two CCAT teams uh, and LUD. So that is two doctors, two critical care nurses, and two respiratory therapists. And so getting to know my team, kind of getting into a routine, I got to do one CCAT flight before. And we did get to go into Doha, and I got to ride a camel and hold a falcon. So just really experiencing a normal LUD deployment uh, until early August when um, we started watching the news and seeing what you were all seeing as well.
0: Yeah. Let's get to that point. A little bit of context there to remind ourselves of what happened then. The Afghan government collapsed. uh, August 15th is the date that my research says Uh, that collapse triggered a mass panic. Uh, Tens of thousands of Afghans, uh, many of them we remember are American allies who aided the war effort. They rushed to the airport, uh, nearly 6,000 U.S. service members dispatched to Afghanistan as the capital fell. Um, it was seen to be the greatest test of this uh, the Defense Department's, the Pentagon's emergency evacuation uh, since the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, nearly 125,000 people, according to my research, rescued over 17 days, an amazing feat. Unfortunately, tens of thousands More were stranded in Afghanistan with uh, no clear path to be reunited with family in the U.S. When did you first fly into Afghanistan? Take us from Qatar to to Afghanistan.
1: We were watching on the news, just like you were, those exact facts. Um, We were learning that the transition of power um, started to escalate quickly. As the Taliban were moving through the countryside at a much faster rate than had anticipated, and exactly right, very um, accumulating on that 15th of August. So the 16th of August was when we were supposed to take an original flight, but because of what was happening on the ground with all those people descending on Kabul and then the airport, because we did have airplanes there, and just like you saw in the news, there, were, you know, these people just out of panic and desperation, flooding the airfield and the planes having trouble taking off. They stopped any flights of unnecessary medical or supplies and focused on just getting troops in there to help secure the airfield. So the first flight that I flew in, as Seacat, was on the 18th. And the, they had Marines, 82nd Airborne. They had people on the ground that were able to control HKIA and keep civilians off of it so the planes could start coming in very rapidly and evacuating people as much as possible.
0: We have to recall the desperate panic Um, I know from earlier interviews with U.S. personnel, um, the the militants were beating and even executing some Afghans as they approached the airport. So these people—and tell us about that when you came into contact with that scene. This was desperation. Desperation.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yes, there were Taliban checkpoints. They were going door-to-door. All those stories, um, exactly. And these people, you could tell just the fear that they had. And they're holding their paperwork in the air, trying to get through the gates. Um, yeah, just very much mass panic and desperation on something that I can't ever imagine. You know, you can empathize with it. And you can see it. But you can't imagine um, being that desperate and trying to leave
0: your own country. So at that point, initially, what is your task? What is your, your mission there with your CCAT team?
1: There is a coalition hospital that is a combination Norwegian and American hospital. That's about two and a half blocks inside of uh, Kabul off of HKIA. And we were getting patients, critical patients from that hospital and transporting them. We would bring them back to LUD in Qatar. And then usually a Germany team would come and pick them up from us in Qatar and transport them uh, to Germany for a higher level of medical care. They were critical patients that were anything from injuries because of the evacuation, so gunshot wounds, blasts, that sort of thing, to people with chronic illnesses and diseases that were, needed medical transport to leave, so they couldn't evacuate as a normal um, passenger. They had to evacuate um, with medical assistance. So we were working directly with that coalition hospital to get patients.
0: Mm-hmm. We know the Taliban were present in the, present in the capital at this point. Did you, in your work, see them, have to interact with them, or was that left to other military?
1: We did see them a lot. I did not have to interact with them, but they were very much around. They uh, had their trucks that they would drive by us. So Cat's a little bit different where um, most of the time patients get brought out to the airplane But CCAT has to go and get our patients. We have to, our patients are almost all on life support. So your ventilators, your monitors, and medication IV drips. So we have to take all of our equipment. We would put it on litters, on wheels, and we would kind of walk, jog that two and a half blocks into the city to pick up our patients. So it's a city, not a military base. So you're walking through the streets of Kabul, the Taliban's driving by you, they're in the gates where the people are trying to evacuate. They're standing there on cars. So they're very much present. They were, I remember they were parked right outside that hospital just kind of watching us, but we never had to um, interact with them.
0: What are you thinking at this point? And this is before the suicide bombing on August 26th. Um, w- recall your feelings for us in, in that hairy situation.
1: We're Our feelings were very focused on the task. It was so busy that there wasn't a lot of time to think anything outside of what we were doing. So we were trying to keep up mentally as much as possible. It was a very different situation than CCAT had ever been in before. So we were always, we were changing how we configured people on the plane. We were changing how we did our equipment. So we really were task saturated and focused on our actual job. There wasn't a lot of time to think outside of it. Um, It was, we got to interact with some of the patients, and some of the people that were evacuating because we would put our patients in the airplane and then they would fill up the rest of the airplane. It's a C-17, which is a very large aircraft. They'd fill up the rest of it with people that were evacuating. So we got to interact with them as well. They would help us interpret. And so we got to kind of see them as well. Um, So really just busy is my biggest memory of the whole time is busy.
0: So these transports these huge C17 transports would leave you would stay on the ground in in at the uh, Hamid Karzai Airport though, right?
1: No, we would go back. So we would um fly back and forth. So we every mission was about to Qatar. So we would fly from Qatar to Hkaya, pick up our patients and then fly back to Qatar. And that it's about a 20 to 24 hour mission by the time that you get your plane, get going, fly there, get your patients collected, and fly all the way back. It's about 20 to 24 hours.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to the early evening of August 26th. Uh, we remember that uh, from the news accounts. Uh, the suicide bombing that took place at the International Airport in, in Kabul, um, At least 183 people killed in that suicide attack, including 170 Afghan civilians, 13 members of the U.S. military. Tell us about the day of that bombing and how you first experienced it.
1: I had just gotten back from a previous mission, one of those 20, 24-hour missions, so I was very tired I had just gotten back to my room and was getting ready to go to sleep when my phone rang and it was my doc. And he said, something happened. There's been an explosion at the airport. We're going back right now. And usually we have a little bit of a heads up time when there's going to be a flight. And so this was a no notice big event. Something happened. We got to go. We had no idea. Um, We did know that there were suicide bombers in the area. And when you hear there's an explosion, um, you know, just putting two and two together. We kind of figured that happened, but we had no idea who we were going to be picking up, what the patients were going to be like, how many patients. We had no clue. It was really flying in blind, which is abnormal as well. Usually you have a little bit of a heads up of what you're doing. So the entire way there, we're just setting up the airplane, kind of every case scenario, just trying to get as ready as we could because we had no idea what we were going to be doing or what it was going to be like when we landed.
0: And when did the... Immensity of the horror. Then, um, w- when was it realized by you?
1: Yeah, it was when we were landing. Uh, we had a cell phone, and we had somebody on the ground, one of our liaisons, and we were able to call him. And he's the one that told us what had happened. And this was the first information we started getting at that time. He was estimating ten or eleven U.S. service members had died, um, and just a mass casualty scenario is what he described. So that was the first time. It was just, we were sober and focused before, but then hearing that your brothers and sisters in the military have been killed and many more were injured, it was uh, very sobering.
0: And did you sense then there was a change in terms of the danger that you and the rest of your team were in at that point?
1: Yes, absolutely. And we had been briefed on it before, and so my respiratory therapist, my RT and I, we kind of came up with a mantra. He's from New York, and he's a little sarcastic um, and funny. And he looked at me, and he goes, scary stuff we can't control. And he kind of put his hands in the air. And it made me smile. And I was like, you're right. What we can control is our job. And we can help each other out, and we can work as a team. And so that's what we did, is we just focused on what we had to do.
0: Tell us a bit uh, about the care that you gave to those uh victims of the suicide bombing, the type of injuries you were dealing with, and, and what was first and foremost in, in your mind in, in helping to save as many as possible and transport them out, right?
1: That's exactly right. It was We had to get them out as fast as possible uh, to make room for them to keep treating patients. So they weren't what we would call flight patients. They weren't your typical patient um, who's a little bit more stabilized and ready to fly. They were still very critical. We had six assigned CCAT patients and we had two CCAT teams. So for two doctors, two nurses, two RTs, we had six assigned CCAT patients. And those patients, five of them were on ventilators and full monitors and sedation drips. And the sixth one, um, she was a complete spinal cord injury and she was in spinal shock. So types of injuries and age ranges, the age range was from an 18 month old baby to young adult. Injuries were, it was a ball, suicide bombers used ball bearings in their bombs. So when those ball bearings shoot out, that's what severed um, the female spinal cord. Uh, there was firefights going on in the ground too after the bomb went off. Um, shooting and just like intense fighting occurred after. So we had gunshot wounds, um, explosion. The 18-month-old baby, his mom was holding him when the bomb went off and she passed away. And he had severe neurotrauma, um, physical trauma, broken bones, and um, yeah, his little brain was very damaged. And the Marines that we had, we had a Marine that had to uh, he had basically open heart surgery. He was internally bleeding, and they cracked his chest, stopped the bleeding, put his chest back together, and he had a bunch of chest tubes. We had open bellies, two open bellies, um, which means that they opened up their belly and they did surgery and stopped bleeding. But to fly them, you can't close it because of the pressure. So they kind of put a dressing over it. So they're all very, very critical sick patients who are very unstable. And then our other team, the other medical team, they're called Air, Medi- Air Medical Evacuation or AE. They had your walkie talkie, broken bones, um, you know, more stable patients, but they had um, 21 of those patients.
0: I have to take a breath here, that description, really. Um, you're an ICU nurse. I'm wondering how you reacted to that scene. You'd never, I assume, been in anything like that before.
1: No, definitely not. Um, and I am an adult, <laughs> adult ICU nurse. I am mostly open hearts is my experience. So especially having a pediatric neurotrauma patient is not uh, comfortable for me. You know, I've had training, and I can do it, but it is definitely not comfortable. So, yeah, was you felt like you had to be at the top of your game and very watchful.
0: Yeah. I understand the transport to Germany, that flight uh, took about eight hours. What do you remember about the flight in particular?
1: Yeah, I remember thinking going into it, okay, we've got eight hours. And in my brain, I'm like, all right, this is a nursing shift. Like, we've got this, and, you know, I can do this. We had been up for, we were estimating 50, you know, upper 40s to 50 hour at that point. And we'd been up for a very, very long time. So we were very tired. And it was very busy. We don't have a full complement of supplies that we're dealing with. So we are, um, you know, trying to make sure that we're conservative. This is a long flight that we don't use up all of our supplies. And CCAT also doesn't have um, pediatric supplies. So we had to kind of make do and be creative and work with what we got for this pediatric patient. So we were very busy, you know, there was no resting time. We had um, a critical event with the 18 month old. Um, He lost his IV access, lost his airway. So we had to work on that. And then um, we also had to do a massive blood transfusion because one of the patients started to hemorrhage as well. So very busy. I just remember a lot of teamwork and, just helping each other out the whole time.
0: Okay. So, what do you remember most in terms of the? What will you always carry with you about those? Uh, that part of the evacuation, the, the 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 part for which you have been deservedly honored by um, with with the Distinguished Flying Cross. What what are the images, the sounds that you will carry with you?
1: The faces, I think, are what I'll always remember. Is our patients' faces. Um, there's a couple that always stick out. One of them is a marine corporal, and he was the open heart patient and he ended up getting a bronze star because he saved our other patient, the spinal cord injury marine, by dragging her to safely while while he was internally bleeding, he pulled her to safety and It's just such an honor that we were the ones that got to get them home. So I mm-hmm. always think about them. He kind of woke up when we were on transport, Uh, when we landed in Germany, the transport to the hospital, he woke up a little bit and I was able to tell him that he was in Germany and his eyes got really big and I said, it's okay, you're safe now. And I said, I'm going to give you a little bit of medicine. And as I did, he mouthed, thank you. And it just killed me, you know, that he's sitting here thanking me when, you know, he's so severely injured and all that he gave. So that's what I remember more than anything.
0: What are the challenges in, in decompressing from such a scene, so many hours at work, so focused to save lives? What challenges did you personally face as an ICU nurse in that scenario?
1: When we were over there, we had each other, which I think was the most helpful. So you have a whole team of people who all just work together and all, saw the same things together. So we were able to talk about it a lot. We also got to do conference calls where we did follow-up. Um, we had follow-up information on what happened to our patients. So seeing what it happened to them when they got home and seeing the Marines make it back to their families is very helpful. When we got home to the U.S. now, and I didn't go over with anybody from my unit, so I was alone. I got home to my states, and I was very happy to be home with my family. But you did feel a little detached and a little alone. I remember the first time I went to a drill weekend after I got back from deployment, I felt almost like I was playing dress up and I felt that nobody could really understand. Like, how could you imagine what I just saw? And just having that support system, I have a great family. My husband is a combat deployed. And just being aware and talking about it helps everything. Um, people need to process it. It's the way our brains work. So having that good support system of friends and family helped me able to just talk about it and process it and kind of get over that um, feeling of detachment.
0: Okay, uh, Major Lunning, Katie, uh, please stay with us. Uh, We have to take a short break, and we'll be back with more of this conversation. You were, in fact, on the very last flight, American flight out of Afghanistan in August. Um, we'll have you describe that uh, when we come back. Uh, uh, Katie Lunning, um, Central Iowa VA nurse now, um, Air National Guard major, awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her role in helping evacuate and care for patients coming out of Kabul, Afghanistan, during the U.S. Armed Forces' chaotic exit. Uh, uh, performing so well in the August in August of 2021. It's River to River from IPR News, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande*, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at org.
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.
0: And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking today, having the pleasure and the honor of talking with Major Katie Lunning of the Air National Guard. Um... Uh, she was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her role in helping evacuate and care for patients in Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, during that um, horrific, uh, chaotic exit in August of 2021. You were let's let's finish up if we could, Katie, with your uh, account of the the very last time you were in Afghanistan. You were on the very last American flight out of Afghanistan on the 29th. Tell us about that, uh, that last flight and the days that led up to it.
1: We returned from Germany on the 28th after the uh, suicide bomber. So by the time we made it back to Qatar after that event, it was the 28th. And they told us that we were going to fully leave Afghanistan on the 29th. So the agreed upon date was the 30th. But after that suicide bomb, it had just gotten very chaotic and more unstable on the ground. So they moved the date to the 29th to try to be as safe as possible. So um, we set up what was called a standby medical mission. This had never been done before, but all of the medical help had left. So the coalition hospital that we had gone to, all of those members had returned home. So they, they weren't there anymore. So there was no on the ground medical help. So they had us be this standby support because as they saw us leaving, They figured it would probably be more chaotic, grow more unstable. The Taliban was providing the security at the airport, so we were unsure how secure that would be. So they wanted to have a medical support available if something were to happen. So we set up our whole airplane. We had the two CCAT teams again and the air medical evacuation team, and we had our entire aircraft set up uh, to respond and our backpacks ready to go if there was a medical emergency of any kind.
0: And in those few days before you exited on August 29th, what what do you remember about those last days, hours in Afghanistan?
1: I remember just we wanted to be a part of that last mission. We had done so much, you know, in those couple short weeks, and we felt like we wanted to see it close out. So we wanted to be a part of that final mission. We wanted to see it through to the end. So even though we were very tired and we've been going so hard, we wanted to be a part of it because we had done so much up until that point. So we wanted to be there at the very end and help if anything was needed.
0: Just days before there was the the, the suicide bombing, you had to have your, your own personal safety in mind as well. Did you feel vulnerable? Did you feel uh, it could happen again, something even worse perhaps?
1: Yeah, that was definitely in our mind. And we just, you can't dwell on it. We had to focus on our job because if you sat there and thought about the scary stuff, you wouldn't be able to work. So that was when my RT and I would, you know, kind of say that to each other of the scary stuff you can't control. And that was just kind Mm -hmm. of a reminder of remember why we're here and that we're airmen first and let's do our job.
0: I remember that last uh, huge transport lifting uh, in in the news accounts, of course, um, Mm -hmm. lifting away from the um, Hamid Karzai international airport. I remember thinking Katie, uh, not being a military person, I was just so afraid one of those last transports would be shot down.
1: Mm -hmm. I I was too. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Yeah, fortunately, it went very well, but yeah, the danger was definitely very real.
0: Yeah. As I mentioned, nearly 125,000 people rescued over 17 days, a magnificent feat by the U.S. military. Um, Tens of thousands more I'm sure you're aware, of course, and have thought about this quite a bit, stranded in Afghanistan, um, many who had helped the U.S. military over the 20-year war there, many with no clear path to be reunited with family in the United States. What are your thoughts uh, about the Afghans left behind?
1: You know, as an active military member, I don't get a lot of a political opinion on these things. I just know that I, you know, I think of the families that I was able to help and I think about their faces and I think about the opportunities that they're going to get now. So that's what I try to focus on is remembering all the ones that we were able to help and hopefully they've settled into their homes and are, you know, getting some wonderful opportunities.
0: Right. I guess I I wasn't meaning it as a political question, but (laughs) especially your thoughts as uh, considering this honor as a... uh, Mm -hmm for this honor, but the news out of Afghanistan now, how women uh, have been returned Mm -hmm. to their traditional uh, submissive, more submissive roles, uh, not allowed to further their education. That has to hurt for you, especially.
1: Yeah, Uh, it is. I'm very, you know, you're, you don't get to choose where you're born, you know, and um, it is, it's hard to see um, people suffering
0: what were your thoughts on the, receiving the, the honor? This happened in the Twin Cities uh, just a few days ago, the Distinguished Flying Cross. This is the highest military award given for acts of heroism or extraordinary achievement while in aerial flight. Uh, you became one of the very few women, few nurses, awarded the country's oldest military aviation award, uh, the Distinguished Flying Cross. And also something uh, that has a curious name, at least to my ears, the Sea C- device. Explain (laughs) what what that is, too.
1: Yeah, it was very humbling to find out that I was going to receive this award, and I'm just very proud to represent nursing, and especially Air National Guard nursing. There have been, throughout history, wonderful nurses and Air National Guard nurses, and I think it's amazing that we're getting recognized for the things that nursing can do. So I was very honored to um, accept this award, you know, on behalf and just thinking of nurses in general. The C device uh, is for combat. So that C device um, means that when you did the work um, to receive the award, you were in a combat situation. So under fire.
0: I understand you've been in the military uh, more than 20 years. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell us the story. What prompted you to join the military in the first place?
1: You know, I think it was just a kid getting out of high school and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I thought about nursing. I have a lot of nurses in my family. My great-grandma, grandma, my aunt, my cousin, lots of nurses. So I was interested in nursing. And I had a lot of friends going off and doing other things in college. And I did have one friend that joined the National Guard, and she was telling me about the great benefits and the training opportunities, and I thought that sounded like something I wanted to do too. So I joined out of high school, and then it took a little bit um, for me to go to basic training. So I was able to finish a year of college before I went to basic training.
0: Mm-hmm. And where were you at the time? Where did you grow up? I am from Hastings, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so I understand there's there's some connection here with— as well what is that?
1: Uh, Yeah I was actually um, just starting that first um, year of college and I was at University of Wisconsin River Falls and I remember standing in my dorm room watching 9-11 happen thinking okay what I just do (laughs) what I join Um, and at the same time uh, feeling proud and motivated um, to help my country.
0: Now it's been over 20 years in the military. Uh, did you think that at the beginning, that uh, your initial enlistment would uh, end up as a career?
1: I did not. I really thought I would do my initial enlistment was for six years, and I thought I would get money for school and get some experience and then go on my way. But here I am yeah. 20 years later.
0: <laughs> right. You've been in the Guard for, for 20 years. What what uh, kept you uh, re-enlist, re-enlisting?
1: You know, I think it was the people more than anything. I It's a great unit. I've been part of the Minnesota Guard, so a lot of the same people. A lot of great experiences. And I've been fortunate enough to have these experiences. And I was given the opportunity to commission and be an officer and be a nurse. And every time a new opportunity came up, I tried to say yes to it.
0: If you've just joined us, uh, Major Katie Lunning is my guest this hour. Uh, she's currently a, a Central Iowa a VA nurse uh, and, uh, and manager, and uh, uh, also in the Air National Guard, she's a major um, in the Minnesota uh, National Air National Guard. Awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for her role in helping evacuate and care for patients uh, in Afghanistan in 2021. Uh, tell us, uh, when did you and your husband move to Iowa, and why?
1: We moved in 2018. And my husband is full-time National Guard as well, and he had been in the Minnesota National Guard. And he had the opportunity and was selected for a Command sergeant major position, which was a promotion, in Des Moines, in the Iowa National Guard in Des Moines. So we decided to take the adventure and move to Des Moines.
0: Mm-hmm. I noticed a slight, let's just say, Minnesota accent. Is that, <laughs> is that noticed here in Iowa, south of the Minnesota border, by your colleagues and friends? It
1: really is, and I never, I didn't know that it would stand out so much because it's not that far away. But yes, it is very obvious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's a nice accent. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit, of, if we could, about your work uh, the past few years uh, at the the VA in Central Iowa. Of course, you've had to withstand uh, the, the crisis, and of course, medical care has been a key to getting us through this pandemic. Uh, what were your tasks? Uh, what will you remember most about the challenges at the VA in central Iowa uh, during the COVID pandemic?
1: Yes, uh, everything changed like the whole world did. And like many other ICUs and hospitals, we were watching the COVID rates and kind of watching it move across the country from the coast and trying to prepare and figure out what kind of PPE, the personal protective equipment, the masks, the gloves, the gowns, what we were going to need. We were all very nervous, um, trying to keep our families safe at the same time. Patients started to come in with, I'll, I'll never forget our first COVID positive patients and the, how they just kept coming after that for a couple of years. So it, we're a small VA. I like to say that we're a small town hospital in a big city. And we were able to not only provide care for our veterans, but we were also able to provide humanitarian care and take some non-veterans as well Um, just to kind of help relieve the community hospitals as much as possible. So it was great to see the VA being a partner with community hospitals and helping non-veterans as well, and everybody was just pitching in together.
0: We're speaking now in January of 2023. Are there still ripples, uh, challenges caused by the the pandemic in in your area of work?
1: I think so. I think things will never be fully the same again. COVID's here with us now. The flu is here with us now. It's just an additional challenge that we're always thinking about. We always think about COVID, you know, just people coming into the hospital, testing for it, how we use our PPE. Yeah. COVID changed a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. uh. We've focused mainly on your work in Afghanistan, having you tell us that riveting story and those experiences of service to our country. But, but I wonder, because you have such a, a long career in the military that we haven't spoken about, if you'd like to give us some more of the most memorable deployments you've had, perhaps here in, in the U.S. as part of the Air National Guard.
1: One of my favorite uh, deployments, that you, if you will, would be to Kentucky. And there is an opportunity every year where they're called Innovative Readiness Trainings, or IRTs, because everything's an acronym. And these humanitarian opportunities, we go to areas that don't have um, a lot of access to medical capabilities. So Appalachia, if you will, in Kentucky. And we provide uh, free medical care. So it's limited, but we'll do physicals, look at... Maybe you need antibiotics, you know, small things. And sports physicals for kids so they can play sports. We do glasses so they can come and get an eye exam and we'll make glasses within 24 hours. They can come back and pick them up. And dental work. And that's probably the biggest problem is dental work. Um, dental care can be very expensive. It can be a hard benefit to get. There's a large need for dental work. So we have dentists that will pull teeth and fix cavities and clean teeth and it's just an amazing opportunity. We're there for two weeks, and the people, at first, they kind of trickle in to see what we're about, and then word will get out on what we're doing, and there'll be lines, you know, lining up before we even open in the morning. So it's mm. an incredibly rewarding experience.
0: Any other stateside deployments, uh, perhaps, uh, for, uh, to, to remedy or help out after a natural disaster?
1: We did some flooding support. Uh, I am from Minnesota, so I was involved in the largest state activation in Minnesota history for civil unrest, and then during the pandemic as a nurse, I was on state active duty for four months uh, for long-term care facility relief, where we went in to long-term care facilities where all the staff was out with COVID, and we took care of the patients and the residents while the staff was out with COVID, and we did that Mm -hmm. for about four months.
0: Civil unrest is in connection with the, the killing of George Floyd? Yes, correct. Yeah, and what was your role there? What were uh, what did what, what were you tasked with at that point?
1: Um surprisingly enough cuz I am a nurse. Um we <laughs> we went and I was guarding the state emergency operations center and we had um, we were tasked with doing door guard security and making sure that that state emergency operations center was safe and that they could work on their jobs. So we did security. mm mm-hmm.
0: Mhm. Um, l- let me ask you: With this long military career, when you look back at it, um, and um, I don't know, do you plan to do you plan to retire anytime soon? I think you're eligible for retirement after twenty years in the military, aren't you?
1: I am. Um, I still enjoy it so much. I hope they plan on keeping me around for a little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I have no doubt they they will be happy to hear your words. <laughs> um, how how has being Katie in the military changed you as a person? I wonder if you've uh, thought about, you know, what if you had not made that choice when you were a younger person, uh, not chosen the military path? What kind of person you would have been? But you you can't know that. But how has it changed you?
1: Yeah, gosh, that is a great question. I, I can't imagine I would be anywhere close to the same person that I am, because it's been so much a part of my life, even though it's a part-time, and I say that with quotes, um, job, it really takes up so much of your time and so much of your thinking and planning. I mean, it's I met my husband in the military. Most of my friends are in the military. So my decisions on my job, my career, everything has been based on my military. So it'd be hard to imagine what I would have done without being part of the Minnesota Guard.
0: Yeah. And as you earlier stated, the The most satisfying aspects, enjoyable, are just the people that you have in, mm-hmm. alongside you in the military.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand. Uh, looking toward the future, uh, you're going to Norway soon in February. Yes. Tell us about that, if you could.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Minnesota and Norway have one of the longest-standing um, exchange partnerships between any state and country. And so it's a very unique opportunity. This is the 50th year that it's been going on. So we're very excited to celebrate the 50th anniversary. And what started as kind of a handshake deal between Minnesota and Norway has become this very robust and great partnership and friendship. Norway will send troops here to Minnesota, and they will train with the Minnesota Guard. And Minnesota sends uh, troops to Norway, and we get to train with the Norwegians. We learn winter training, how to survive in the snow, cross-country skiing, all the techniques that they do for winter survival. So it's just, and you make lifelong friendships.
0: So you've, you've already learned these uh, survive in the cold techniques?
1: I was able to go last year. I was uh, the assistant to the officer in charge last year, and this year I'm coming back as the officer in charge. So I did get to experience it last year and I got that experience. So that way this year I can be in charge and kind of help coordinate and um, guide as we go.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are in Iowa. We're not in Minnesota or Norway, but tell us, reveal some of the secrets of <laughs> surviving in the cold. <laughs> what, what sort of practical uh, situations, scenarios do they put you in and, and, and yeah. that you learn from?
1: Yeah. Well, Iowa gets plenty cold. <laughs> we do. Yes. Um, wool is our friend. So I never realized the importance or the greatness of wool until I was in Norway. They love wool. wool. Dry wool will keep you really warm. And being dry is very important. So they use a lot of techniques to keep dry. Um, when you get warm, you don't want to sweat. So they will, you know, you vent your... Jackets so you don't get sweaty, and then zip them back up when you're getting cool again. So being dry is very important. And wool, I think those are the two biggest takeaways.
0: Wool has a has a great quality. Also, not as effective, but when it's wet, it works as well to some degree. Yes,
1: yes, exactly to wick that away. They give you something um, that we affectionately call fishnet underwear, and it's long underwear, but it's made out of wool and it's like fishnets, so it has holes in it but that's what it's doing is it's wicking away your sweat and that's to help keep you warm by keeping you dry.
0: Oh no. Is it, it's not the scratchy wool, is it, or is it?
1: It's <laughs> not. I don't, it, <laughs> I don't know how they do it, but it is not itchy.
0: <laughs> okay. And, and you ski there as part of this uh, training?
1: You do. And I grew up doing skiing. Um, Minnesota has a couple of, very local, popular hills, um, Afton Alps. I grew up downhill skiing and that did not prepare me at all for cross country skiing up and down mountains in Norway, but they are wonderful teachers and they're very patient and they make sure that we all get up the mountain together and that we all make it down together too.
0: Yeah. Uh, is eating, is the cuisine in, in Norway, a, a different, uh, adventure as well?
1: It is. Um, I don't love fish a lot, but I really like their fish. Um, They prepare it really well. We also ate caribou and moose, and we asked them at the restaurant, "Like, wow, is this really fancy?" And they kind of looked at us weird and were like, "No, it's just our food." (laughs) So where it seems kind of a delicacy to us, they're like, "No, we just we eat caribou. That's what's here." So yeah, different wild game and different preparations. Mm
0: -hmm. Did you have a chance to see the northern lights there in Norway?
1: We did, and that was incredible. So when we were on our field experience and we were camping out in tents, we were actually watching an outdoor movie and in the snow, on some snow steps that we built, and the northern lights came out above us and definitely felt like a once-in-a-lifetime experience.
0: Yeah, I've never seen them, only photos, images of them. What's the difference between seeing it on a, on a big screen and, and seeing it for real?
1: It They were moving, I think, was the what was most surprising to me, it it looked like a curtain and just the way it felt like it it was rippling and they would change from that green to purple and back again and just how they moved so gently.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Major Katie Lunning, uh, this has been such a pleasure uh, to speak with you and and share, have you share your experience with uh, uh, Iowa Public Radio listeners. Uh, We are also appreciative of of you and the others in the military who have uh, served us so well. And uh, and uh, thank you for this conversation. We wish you all the best, no matter how many years you're in the military, to you <laughs> and, and your husband. Take care now.
2: Thank you so much. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR, where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.
0: And that's it for today. Today's River to River, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. (laughs)